Welcome to the Business of Family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi-generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you will enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly Business of Family newsletter, go to businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. I learned so much from this conversation with Nikke Anani, a second generation family business leader from Lagos, Nigeria. Nikke is an accountant by trade, worked at Deloitte in the UK, has traveled all over the world, but ultimately found her calling back with the family business in Nigeria. She wears multiple hats today from stewarding the family enterprise, setting up the family office, working in the family business, being an entrepreneur herself, and in her spare time, uh, advising other family businesses in Africa about how they manage the cultural difficulties and nuances of succession, transition, and estate planning. This really opened my eyes in a number of ways. I think you're going to enjoy this episode a great deal. Nick Hare, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you again for being here today. Thank you, Mike. I'm really excited about our conversation. Me too. Me too. You have such a unique story to tell. I can't wait to share this with everybody. Uh, Rather than me spoiling it, Would you mind starting with a little bit about who you are, uh, where you are, and uh, your family business story and and the origins of all of that? I think it's fascinating. Awesome. Um, My name is Nika Anani. I am based in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm a second-generation family business owner, and my family business origin is very much infused into my life. Um, My parents were young doctors and young teachers when they had me at 25, 26, and they couldn't give me the life they wanted, the standard of living they wanted. And they found themselves starting up what we term as a side hustle in this day and age. And really that grew over the years. So it initiated as my father was a doctor, like I said, and he was practicing initially. He first started supplying medical consumables to hospitals and teaching labs across Nigeria. And over the years, that expanded into medical equipment and then designing and constructing hospitals. And really flash forward today, we're not really known in the medical space. We're just known as a construction company. So having built the core competence to you know, build out construction team for the healthcare sector, we realized that there was an opportunity to also build general infrastructure, roads, schools, stadiums, um, key walls, fertilizer plants. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's that was the origin of the family business. It's just always, it was always the background of my life growing up. At age nine, my mum, my brothers and myself, we moved to the UK for our education. So, My dad stayed back in Nigeria building out the business. So I was quite far removed from it for many years until in my mid-20s when I came back to Nigeria to kind of discover myself. And have you discovered yourself? I think I have. (laughs) 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 So I went to uni in London, studied economics. I mean, from age nine, um, we would visit Nigeria very often to see my dad. We would visit Christmas, Easter, summer. But it just, I always felt like a fish out of water. And I always felt like I didn't belong. But one thing that really struck me was the extent of poverty. So I was always quite passionate about how can we ensure that Africa doesn't get left behind? And how can we ensure that we see sustainable economic development? So I studied economics at UCL. and wanted to um, play my part in the sector, but I didn't really know how. I went, you know, chose a traditional career, what I would have been expected of me. I decided to become an accountant and worked with Deloitte 
in corporate tax international in the city of London. But I really loved Deloitte. I loved everything about the company. I loved my colleagues. I loved it, but the work was just not for me. It didn't inspire me. It didn't light me up. And so I remember having a conversation with my dad and he called me and was like, where do you see yourself in five years time? You know, kind of like interview style questions that parents give you. And, (laughs) and I was like, honestly, not here. And I don't know where, I can't tell you where, but I just know that this isn't for me. And we decided that it would be a great idea for me to come to Nigeria, get exposure to what he'd been doing in the business, in the family's investments, perhaps meet a few of his friends, just get more exposed, get out of the office a bit and see the real business world in his words. And that was a plan for me to come for three months and then go traveling for six hopefully discover myself and go back to the UK and find a job in whichever industry lit me up. But I just fell in love with Nigeria. I saw Nigeria in a completely different light when I came back for those three months. I saw the entrepreneurial Nigeria and it was so electric and it just lit me up in a way that the city of London did not. And I also found that as a young Black female, I found, felt more liberated in Nigeria compared to the city of London. I felt there were more opportunities for me. Yeah, I was in meetings and I felt, in a weird way, I felt like I had more of a voice with older men because it, it was very informal business culture. You could be down at the yacht club on a Sunday wearing shorts and eating chicken wings and you're talking about really important deals in a very informal way. So I felt quite included And so, yeah, that was the beginning of my entrenching into the family enterprise. (laughs) Um, And entrenched I was. I was very involved in the construction company on admin side, HR, finance. And then I set up the family office to manage a number of our investments. A lot of our investments were infrastructure type projects, PPPs, manufacturing plants, so real assets as opposed to liquid portfolio. And I really loved it. I met so many amazing people, learned so much. I saw the most sophisticated deals with institutionals and also SMEs on the other side, where it's like they're just kind of winging it and very informal. And I loved that breadth of the types of people I was working with. Um, the types of industry I was dealing with. And so it just seemed like this perfect marriage of, you know, what I was seeking for in my career and what the family business and the family enterprise provided for me. Sounds incredibly diverse. Yeah, very, very diverse. Very diverse. That's what I really love about working in the family business enterprise, really, because it's beyond just the business. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to hear all about that. Before we get too far along, though, there's a, a question uh, burning that I want to ask. How did your father or how did the family make the jump from medical consumables to construction and building hospitals? I mean, was there just no one else that could do it, so he had to figure it out? I mean, that is really quite a leap. You know, I think, and that's an observation I have of founders and entrepreneurs that are just really they're just amazing people that have an eye for opportunity and don't look inward and think, oh, I can't do this because this isn't my line of expertise. My father's very, he's very entrepreneurial and he will see something that's completely out of, you know, his skill set, and he'll figure out a way to do it. Okay. We'll hire someone that has that skill set that can advise us. We'll, we'll partner with someone that, that can do this. Right. So, so, So Nigeria transitioned from military rule to democracy in 1999. And there was, in that transition, there was a lot of focus on economic development projects, social infrastructure development. And so my father spotted this huge opportunity where he'd been serving these same clients, state governments at times, um, federal government, supplying them with medical consumables, and they needed someone to design and construct hospitals. But a lot of the time, the the local players didn't have the right expertise. 
and he was quite close to the government. So he spotted an opportunity to be to partner with foreign players that did have the right expertise in designing and constructing hospitals and positioned us as like the leading indigenous player for construction of in the healthcare space. So that was how it, we, we started our journey into moving from like consumables, equipment to construction. And then again, oppor- very entrepreneurial dad spotted an opportunity. Okay, we've got these We've now built some capacity internally to design and construct for hospitals. It's the same concrete we we need for roads. It's the same skills we need for stadiums or schools or what have you. And we just went all out. And today, I'm not really sure. I don't think we have a single healthcare project in our portfolio, actually. Just incredible. I love hearing entrepreneurial stories like that. Really inspiring. So tell me, when you got involved in the business in terms of your on-ramp, were there any other family members or extended family members in the business or was the only person the founder and your father? My father is the founder. So <laughs> it was just me and dad. There was no one else. And I'm the oldest. I've got two younger brothers. They were both in the UK at the time. My mum was a co-founder on paper, but mum really is not entrepreneurially inclined. So she never really got involved. She just kind of signs documents and yeah, just <laughs> blindly signs her life away. Um, <laughs> so I guess it was also an exciting time for my dad because he'd f- found it quite lonely as a founder of this business. I can imagine. Yeah. And especially when we were out in the UK. You know, you're you're building this business for the purpose of the family so that they have security, but you've got no outlet to actually talk about the business with any of these people. Um, and so when I came back and I was also very passionate about business management, strategy, and we would just talk for hours about you know, it was like, it was like jokes. We'd be in meetings and just sniggering and laughing. We had insider jokes and meetings and people were like, what's going on? I remember a particular business trip to India and we were looking at um, a particular agriculture company out in India to look at partnering with them. And we went for four days driving in rural India, just looking at different projects. And the folks there were like, you're like brother and sister. You're not like father and daughter. Because <laughs> we were just cracking jokes the whole time. So it was really lovely working with my dad because I've been in the UK for all, all those many years. And I felt like I didn't know him as an adult. And coming back into the business was like, yeah, I got to know him. We're very similar. And also equally on his side, he had been quite lonely. There was no one in the family he could talk to about these things. And I took off a lot of the burdens off his shoulders, particularly on like estate planning, all that fun stuff. Like, dad, we need to, where's the will? Like, okay, so-and-so has it. Or maybe we need to set up a trust. Um, so I did a lot of that. And, you know, dealing with KYC, all the boring stuff no one likes to do, but I had experience in doing from my my days at Deloitte. So it was honestly just, it was a really good match. And it was very organic as well. So it was never growing up. I would never have thought I'd be working in the family business. Like like I said, I came home for three months to discover myself. And (laughs) I never thought it'd be in the business. I thought I would meet, you know, some high flyers in Nigeria that had some cool deals and get exposed to cool industries. And I'd go for my business MBA in the UK and then apply for you know, some job in the US or in the UK. That was that was where my mindset was. So yeah, it was all very organic. So it was very organic for you. Was it as organic for your father as well? Or, or do you think that, you know, his intentions were to lure you back and, and hope that you were excited about what he was building? You know, do, do you think there was an intention on his side or was it just, you know, pure luck, serendipity and, and organic that it all worked out? I think it was all pure luck. I honestly don't think he had explicitly thought about what will I do with this business in 30 years time when he started building it and all the years were in the UK. Like most founders, when they start, they're just thinking about maybe five years, 10 years, not thinking way out. And so my dad's still very young. My dad will be 59 this year. So 
he's still the CEO, still flying up and down and developing projects and investing left, right and center, right? Um, so it was, it was literally just serendipity, just luck. Yeah, we'd never had a conversation about um, me coming back to the business. The conversations we would have was, what's your five-year plan? Like he was asking me that during that time he called me and was interviewing me. <laughs> what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? Is there anyone I can link you up with? in my network. Ah, okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't, do you fit into my five-year plan? It was, how can I help you on, on your own journey? Oh no. How can I help you? Because he'd been doing a lot of development of deals. So it was working with institutionals, private equity players, bankers, lawyers in London and New York. And so that was his thinking was, okay, if it is that, cause he, 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 he suggested to me, what about private equity? Would you like to work in a PE fund? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I really don't know. I can tell you, yeah. But he was like, because I've got this person, you can talk to this person, they can mentor you, um, what have you. So it wasn't about fitting into his plans. It was about, as most founders do, was about giving me the best opportunity to set me up for success. And often in their minds, success is going as far away from the business to get the best experience, but there's often this mismatch with so they can come back, whether it's come back and work on the battleground in the business or come back in the sense that metaphorically, even if I wasn't a PE firm, what skills could I bring to the table um, from the sidelines? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And you raise a good point. So how did all of this ultimately inspire you to learn more about family business and family enterprise particularly in Africa. And where have, where has that journey taken you? What really led me to, I became quite obsessed about family businesses, to be perfectly honest, was that <laughs> my observation was decisions making was very different with dad than in Deloitte. Decisions that would take an hour in Deloitte would take six weeks with my in my family business. And the inverse also held... True. So decisions that would take six weeks in Deloitte would just be made like this. And it just, I was like, what is going on? Like, so initially I thought my role was I've had all this great experience in Deloitte, just make my father's business a mini Deloitte in construction. And it just wasn't working, right? Um, There was so much informality. There was so much um, speed and nimbleness. There was so much change in direction quite quickly. And I just, it just, I felt kind of lost in the system. And it was until I watched a webinar on family business and there was a gentleman narrating his experience from Belgium. I was like, this man is literally describing my father. Like, what is this? And I started reading around. I started attending other webinars and conferences, trainings. I was like, these people are literally just describing my family. What in the world is this? But there was always like in an African context, how does this apply? Um, because our culture is quite complex. Africa's a large continent with even Nigeria. A, we've got 200 million people with 250 tribes. It's very, very diverse and complex. But, you know, um, we're a lot more communal down in the West we have very different economic risk that we face and political risk as well. So I always question, how does this fit in a Nigerian context? A lot of what you're, you're telling me to do, how does this fit? And I guess it became very clear that there was no support locally. Um, I didn't find anyone that could help me navigate my my life transitions and navigate integrating and building a legacy business and what have you. And so I then decided to train myself up. The idea was to train myself up to be able to have the skills to build our family business effectively. And you had to look outside the country and the continent in order to try and get those skills? Oh, yeah. So there's a family firm institute out in Boston and I became a member of that and trained up with them. And then, you know, in this becoming very obsessed about family business, I was reading up on, okay, what, what, what is that on family business in Nigeria and Africa? 
And like in most economies, family businesses are the engine of the Nigerian economy, but completely overlooked. Our national obsession is oil and gas, oil and gas. Um, and no one looks to family businesses who are the major players. So 90% of indigenous businesses are family businesses, but only 2% survive beyond the founder here. 2%? Two. One, Beyond two. the founder. You're not talking third One, gen, two. fourth gen. One, two. <laughs> wow. And what, what, what then happened was, so I came across that study and I was like, what in the world is this? Like, why? Why are we not seeing as much generational transition? And then it was like the universe, God, or whomever then brought a live case study for me. A friend of mine, her father passed away. And it was just, classic. Within six months, the whole thing was just a disaster. There was fighting, conflict, business fell apart, like just classic. And I was like, okay. And so that was my wake up call. Like, okay, I think it's important that we start the conversation as a people, at least the very least we can do is start to ruminate. Why, why has this become the norm? And what can we do to change the, the, the discourse? Because, like I said, family businesses are so key to the economy. And they're not like corporates. They're not like blue chip companies. There's like stakeholder capitalism at play. And there's almost, you know, consideration of the wider ecosystem. So because of the high levels of poverty and economic instability, Founders like my father end up taking up kind of like, they, they infuse philanthropy and commercial business into the same kind of model. I often say to people, philanthropy in Africa, everyone's a philanthropist. I'm a philanthropist. I just don't have a foundation. I, I support many people um, because many people don't have jobs. They've got bills to pay, school fees, hospital bills, and what have you. And so family businesses are so key to the community. If they keep failing after a generation, what's that doing to the economy? That, so that was really my, my driver. Uh, like I said, my passion was economic development. I just didn't really find a way into that field after university. So, so yeah, that's, that's how I became super obsessed with this field. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great match for your training and, and interests, I think, to watch the economic development from this the engine, as you say, the engine of the economy with family businesses driving it. So have there been more case studies since play out in a different way? I'm curious, you know, the wake-up call that you received, what did you ultimately then do about it? Once you got the training, what sort of steps did you take either for your own family or for your friend's family to try and uh, ensure that that wasn't repeated? So in my own family, we started Governance, the word that everyone hates. <laughs> Sounds a bit boring. Right? It's so boring. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I remember hearing about governance on podcasts and um, in books and what have you. And I'd hear governance and I'd just be like, really, do we have to do this? And over the years, it became very clear to me that perhaps the word is the wrong word. Governance is a really boring word. I think of governance and I just see dust piling on some document somewhere. <laughs> Doesn't inspire me. Um, but really, perhaps the word should be conversation and a structure for decision making. And so we've spent a lot of time as a family putting together our governance system. We now have a family council, um, which really includes my brothers a lot more into the conversation into strategic decision-making for both the family business and for the family office as well. So I would say that's a key, key thing that's I've learned from, you know, my journey being an advisor. And secondly, like I said, there was a huge need to start the conversation on the African continent because of the, you know, the, the, the fact that we were doing, we were, we were not performing as well as our global peers. And we started the conversation by creating a community. So 
Along the journey of being obsessed with family business, I connected with another lady in Harare, Zimbabwe, who was very passionate and had similar experiences with family businesses as myself. And we established a community of African family business to start that conversation. What's going on? What are your challenges? Let's create a community so you can, a safe space where we can discuss, you know, um, so you can network with one another, so you can support one another. And, and yeah, so, so those are the two key things. Amazing. So what's the community called and how many years ago was that? It's called African Family Firms, and it was established a year ago, just oh, before the global pandemic. <laughs> Maybe not so great. <laughs> not so great. <laughs> yeah. Still gearing up to uh, to make your impact. It sounds perfect, though. I mean, I, I, I think that um, starting from a relatively small base, the best way to build anything is with community and actually building what that community wants rather than just dictating something that you've found off the shelf from another culture, rather having conversations with each other about what will actually work for you in, in your circumstances. Indeed. And there are many nuances and things that distinguish us as Africans or as Nigerians from other cultures. First is the complexity of the t- subject of gender. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of easy anthropology that would suggest that the African continent has a lot of sexism. And it's very easy to just have a single story, but that's not necessarily the truth. Um, We have very mixed picture. So in Nigeria, some tribes are patriarchal, some tribes are matriarchal. And... Mm-hmm. And another factor is colonialism. Pre-colonialism, there was a lot of females in many tribes were active economically in their communities, had huge voices. In Ghana, for instance, women um, controlled the agriculture sector. In Nigeria, they owned lots of land. But when the Brits came over... And they came from Victorian Britain, which was quite sexist. They revoked, they stopped women from owning land. They stopped many things. So, so the, the looking forward now today, you see that the topic of genders is, is very complex on the continent. You have, we have the highest rate of female entrepreneurship in the world. 60% of businesses are owned by women in Africa. Mm-hmm. But quite often, female-led businesses are performing, you know, significantly behind male-led businesses for a host of other reasons. Uh, Yeah, one of which is access to capital, because it's still a a man's world, so to speak. Um, And there's still boys' clubs. So, So there are nuances on the continent that's important for us, like you said, not just to copy and paste from other cultures. Another is... The complexity of our families. Our families are, are quite complex. I mean, our nuclear, I, I'm just a family of three, but my husband's family, they're six. I've got friends that are from families of 12. They're nuclear families, by the way. So our nuclear families can be quite large. Not only can our nuclear families be large, our extended families can are quite large and quite enmeshed and involved in the nuclear family, unlike what you might see in the West, for instance. So, so, you know, it makes the family business context a bit more complicated. And then we've got a concept of kinship, of non-family family, people that are considered family that are not blood, bloodline relatives. So all these make the whole family business, you know, discourse a bit more complicated and we just have to navigate that and create systems and structures to manage the family so family issues don't spill out into the business or business issues don't spill out and affect the family. That's really interesting. And how have you actually adapted some of that back into this world of governance conversations and and safe spaces? 
do people ultimately end up documenting um, entitlements for uh, kin, for instance, or for extended family? Or are you finding that families, as they start to form their family enterprise and put real rules around it, are following a more of a bloodline lineage in their structure? It really depends. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen all sorts. <laughs> to be honest, um, you know. Every, if you've seen one family business, you've seen one family business. <laughs> Another thing is the openness of families to involve in-laws. It really depends on, it's a very unique thing based on each individual family or families, um, families perspective on polygamy, for instance. So we have a lot of polygamy on the continent, right? In some households, when you're talking to a patriarch, there's a preferred wife and preferred children, so to speak. And and those are who the patriarch is making estate planning and wealth planning towards, and the others are not considered. In others, the wives are like sisters, and they they actually look out for each other more than they look out for the, the husband. So it's the, the thing is, yeah, every situation is so different. And the important thing that I always emphasize with the market is just have conversations. What do you want as a family? I think one of the most important things is clarity. You know, um, a friend of mine says, whenever you wake up is your morning. Some people don't wake up until they're 85. They don't know what they want. And I think you you won't know what you want until you come together as a family and have open conversations. Think about the different scenarios. Okay, if it is that we're passing on all the wealth and the business to the eldest son, what happens if ABCD happens? What if the eldest son, unfortunately, has an addiction problem? Is that what we want? Is that Are those the values that we want to pass on? Are, is that the vision we have for the family enterprise? Just get clear as a nuclear family or an extended family or however you you define family on who are you? What are your values? Where are you heading towards? What's the purpose, you know, of this family business or family office? What's the compelling reason for us as a family to stay together in business or to invest together? They're terrific questions. And I think if you can even broach half of those with family in a room, you get so much further than than what most do. And uh, and that's irrespective of culture. I understand there's also some challenges around estate planning in Africa or in some African nations from a cultural perspective. Can you shed a little bit of light on that too, please? So we've got many influences. So religion is one. So for instance, in Nigeria, 50% of Nigerians are Christian, 50% are Muslim. And in Islam, there's Sharia law specifies how inheritance should, should, should happen. And then you've got cultural and tribal type of influences. Like I said, in some, in some parts of the country here, women are not allowed to inherit. It's actually in some state laws, women are not allowed to inherit. Women are not allowed to own landed property. So it's it's a very <laughs> complicated um, field. Add on top of that, there's a cultural aversion to talk about death here. It's taboo to talk about death. It's taboo globally to talk about money. We also have that as well to some extent. And then you're adding death. So quite often no one's ever had a conversation about what do we own? Who's it going to? <laughs> and so on, uh, when the, the inevitable happens, everything's a surprise. For instance, my friend that I, I cited that her father passed away. So she's the oldest. Mum had three daughters and so three girls. And they're from a state where women can't inherit. So when dad passed away, two boys surfaced with a woman claiming to be his second wife, that they, they'd gotten married by customary, um, customary law, traditional marriage, which here is legal, right? Um, and these two boys were claiming that they were to inherit his property. 
So you, you can see how complicated it gets, which, which makes it even more important for founders, patriarchs, matriarchs during their lifetime to just be open about what it is they own, how they want it to be passed on to the next generation if they do at all, and how we can then structure it so we achieve their aims. That's incredible. And so it, in that scenario, it was quite possible that the three daughters miss out on everything altogether. Everything. And that has disastrous consequences. It's not just, you know, the, the being part of the 2% or not being part of the 2%. It's not just about, we're on to me. I didn't get that Lamborghini and all his property in the UK or whatever. Um like I said, it's also about the wider ecosystem and the stakeholders who are dependent on the family business. Um, when I moved back at a peak, our family business employed 3,000 staff. And these, these are 3,000 people that are dependent on you to eat. And if they didn't have a job in your company, heaven knows if they will find another one because the economy is, is, is rough out there. It's rough out there. And we don't have a welfare system. <laughs> we, 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 this family business has essentially become our welfare system out here. So I always impress it upon the community that think outside of yourself. It might be a difficult conversation to talk about death, transition, maybe, I don't know. I think I'm wired a bit differently. And I think my family's wired quite differently. One of the first tasks I had when I, after my three months, um, (laughs) was to sort out the estate planning for my parents and get their wills done, get the trust done. And it's just, I think my dad and I will, will talk about death maybe once or twice a week. He will say, if I die, this is priority. Really? If I transition, yeah, he does it all the time. He sends emails all the time. I think we're <laughs> we're, we're strange, perhaps. Was that always that way, or is that a trained behaviour since My dad's you've a started down this? Oh, okay, that normalises it some. Yeah, normalised death is like you know it's a scientific event, right? It's the heartbeat stops, and he's seeing cadavers, and you know, um, so I think that made him very clinical towards the whole thing. And then again, I'm. I'm an accountant. I'm very risk averse. I have very high need for financial security. So I'm, and I, I, I lived in the UK where it's a bit more normal to talk about death. Um, so I just come at it as, okay, accountant hat. we need to sort out, you know, we need to protect the family. And I just boom in a way, whereas in other families, I'm not sure <laughs> it's, it's still kind of like, why, why are you talking about death? Are you trying to bring it upon the family? Um, it's, it's, it, it still can be a bit of an uncomfortable conversation. Like for instance, with me and my husband, like, cause I'm so just like, okay, when we die, we need to do this, you know, before we die. And he's just like, why, <laughs> why are you talking about what, this is weird. Like, I'm like, we need to sort out our wills. We need to do this. It's like, um, I'm not really liking this conversation. I'm like, yeah, I don't like it either, but the consequence of not having this conversation is just too grave. To just, I just worry about our children. I worry about the business we've spent because myself and my husband have a business separate from my father's. We spent time, energy building it. So if we were to go, all those people that are dependent on that business, what happens? All that sweat, blood and tears that's gone into it, what happens? We need to put in a plan today so it transitions and we can pass on this legacy to the kids we can protect them. And so the business continues to be a bedrock of the community. I'd love to touch on the role that you're playing today because it sounds like you wear many hats. You've got your own business. There's a family business. You're advising other family businesses, I believe. And then there's the family office, the family council. I mean, can you just sort of give us a global view of of how Nikkei spends her time? Because this is really interesting, I think. Yeah, I I'm, I wear many hats and I love it um, because I was bored wearing one hat in London, so I, I can't complain. Um, it just means I have to be super organized with my time and super intentional about 
what I place my focus on at any given point in time. So seasons change and seasons, different seasons demand that I need to focus on specific things. For instance, the family council went live this year, actually. So um, towards the end of last year, myself and my brother spent a lot of time being prepared for the council. So working on siblings, partnership formation, training, um, coming up with the mission, the values and what have you. And so now we're in a different season where we can now move into just a quarterly meeting and get into the groove of it. And the family business also is in a different season to when I first moved back. A lot of I'm kind of reaping the rewards of a lot of the hard work I put in when I first moved back, laying the foundation. There was no HR when I moved back. There was no finance when I moved back. I'm not, I really don't understand how my dad did all this. Entrepreneurs are amazing people. They really are amazing people, but I don't understand how he did what he was doing. But um, And there was no family office. There was no structure. And so a lot of what I spent my time on eight years ago, I don't need to because there's now a foundation for that. Um, my business with my husband, he runs that full time. So he's an engineer, ex, ex Eaton, ex Cummins. So we set up a power and energy renewable company. So that only demands maybe an hour or two of my time on a monthly basis because of my finance background. I kind of oversee finance from time to time strategic um, planning and what have you. What other hats do I wear? Family business, family office, family council, consulting and advisory. So I only really take on very few clients. I'm, I'm not for the masses. I Because each family and each business is so different, it's, it's impossible to do this whole 90 days program in the family business world. And so I prefer to take on just one or two clients a quarter and dive deep and be able to, you know, focus my time and energy on them. And similarly, the the nonprofit as well. So we go through seasons as well. So we have three conferences a year. We do um, webinars a couple of times a month. So, um, yeah, at any given point in time, I just need to be mindful of what's the focus for this point in time. Add on top of that, being a wife and a mom, obviously. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it can, it can, there can be clashes. It can be situations where like everything's demanding of me and it's like, okay, well, then I need to communicate with someone to delegate something or I need to move something around and someone will be disappointed. And that's fine. It's, it's really taught me a lot about boundaries, honoring myself, giving myself grace, um, not being bound in what people think of me, but having what I, what I term as a true service mentality. If I'm doing all what I'm doing for the benefit of other people, then it really doesn't matter what people think of me. That's the least of my worries. It's a wonderful philosophy. mm, So it's really just about, okay, I I need to be in the best version of myself so I can serve people to the best of my ability. And if I can honor that truth, I'm fine, regardless of what people think of me. If I have to say no, I can't make this meeting. No, I get, as of late as well, I've been getting a lot of people asking me to get involved in their different leadership communities, join this, join that, join this board, join that. I can't. I've only got so many hours in a day and I know my focus for the moment. (laughs) And I have to be mindful of that. So, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you making time for us today because this is a fascinating story. I love conversations. Conversations and connections are priority to me. They're priority to me. Some, Some people don't understand what conversation and connections do, but they're just so, what's the word? Cathartic to me. Um, Not only are they cathartic, they are huge avenues for learning and developing a network. Like who knows? We're having this conversation today and next week an opportunity may come up and I, I then call you 
and we deepen our relationship and deepen our friendship, or it could be just a friendship or it could be mm, a business relationship. So. Heaven knows, right? Yeah. 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 I'm just always, I just love meeting different people from different cultures and different experiences and just soaking in from them. It's thoroughly enriched my life. It's what you've lived for the last decade or so by the sounds of it in terms of you've gone out and self-taught and found the resources you were looking for to try and solve the challenges you were seeing in your own business and in your own community. It's it's quite admirable. I've had to, you know, moving from Deloitte where we had a HR calendar and a training calendar and I knew in January I was doing this course in December and I knew my soft skills, I was going to work on this and my, my technical skills. When I moved back and there was none of that, I had to create that for myself. Um, I didn't want to be left behind. Um, that was a huge kind of insecurity of mine. I didn't want to be left. I didn't want to, to see my friends that were in corporate in New York, London, and meet up for coffee with them and feel like, oh, I, I'm not learning. And left behind didn't necessarily mean that I wasn't as successful, right? It wasn't about beasting it. It was just, I didn't want to be, heaven forgive me, the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> and I just made a conscious effort to just plug into networks. So I joined YPO, which has been phenomenal. Um, I joined... Um, chambers of Commerce has attended trainings, so industry-specific conferences and what have you on construction, on infrastructure as well, infrastructure financing, because we do a lot of that in our family office, and then the family business world. Um, and just you just there's always something new to learn, right? We we we've never arrived. We're just on this ongoing journey of endless learning in my view. Um, Even in this family business industry, I feel like it's all evolving because COVID and families are evolving, aren't they? They're getting bigger. They're getting more complex. You might have new entrants. You might have exits, unfortunately, or divorces. Or The business also is constantly changing, right? Um, With this 21st century disruption, we have to learn new things. So, my philosophy, I guess, has always been just, Nikkei, try to become the best version of yourself by learning from people, connecting with people, and from mentors, from tr- formal training where, where relevant. Um, it's really important to me. You mentioned the family office again there as well. And it's, it's a, again, a different skill set, a different... Uh, environment altogether from just day-to-day operating in the family business. Were your skills and experience from Deloitte helpful there as well? Or did you go out and seek assistance in setting up a family office for the first time? What did that process look like? So that process looked like I went for a specific training program on how to set up a family office. But, you know, if you see one family office, you've seen one family office. Um, And that was really speaking to your typical um, European family office that sold a business and has liquid assets, right? And the family's looking to manage that wealth, right? It wasn't necessarily speaking to us where we were very entrepreneurial family, still incubating, developing businesses and projects and in the infrastructure space. So I, it was a mixture of informal and formal. So my, my dad through his network would be like, okay, this person that I've worked with on this PPP deal is excellent at this. Go and shadow them for one week. Okay. I'll just go to their office and just ask some questions and, and learn. And then sometimes they would recommend doing a course. I did a couple of courses in London on like infrastructure finance, project finance, um, oil and gas mining, um, like low cost housing, things like that as well. As So it was a mixture of really formal and informal, but I think where Deloitte comes in is that I found that Deloitte was an amazing environment. It was just, we were encouraged to learn. There was a lot of learning and there was a lot of accountability as well, like buddy up, have this mentor. 
and talk about what you're learning and how you're doing. I think that mindset really helped me um, when it when it came to this situation where I was literally just thrown in the deep end, something that I'd never done before, um, because I had like a framework for how to learn, how you can learn, how to be accountable to other people. Yeah. I'm curious to flip that on its head now and ask about when it didn't work. You know, has there been a a specific failure that you've learned a great deal from? Is there a favorite failure in your history that has somehow later set you up for success? Oh, yeah, many. Where do we start? Uh, You know, I said I was really passionate about development growing up. And my plan was to work for the World Bank or AFDB or IFC, any of these multilaterals, because as an 18, 19-year-old, that was all I knew, right? And at university, I was very academic in school. So it was, I found it really easy to do quite well without trying in high school. University was a different kettle of fish. It was like, um, I was for the first time very insecure about my academics because we had all these geniuses from all over the world. Um, And I felt very like, yeah, intimidated. And so I applied to all these companies that I thought, obviously they would want me. And not one of them (laughs) mistakenly gave me, not one mistakenly gave me an offer for two two minutes. (laughs) And it was a rude awakening. I remember I was, this was first year of university, summer of first year. And then also my results came out and I think I got a 2-2 in first year. And I needed to get I needed to get a first, get into the organizations I wanted to work in. And I remember coming home, my dad was in town and coming home to my parents and they were asking me, typical Nigerian parents, how are your grades? What did you get? Show me your results. And (laughs) I brought up my results and I had a whole theory about why economics was just not for me because I was never mathematically inclined I wasn't good for big learning environments. I needed to move away from UCL to maybe LSE or School of um, Oriental and African Studies. And I was always quite argumentative. I needed to do law and politics or sociology or something else. And my dad, bless him, I hated him that day. I hated him that day. But honestly, I'm so grateful for this. He was like, the problem with Nikia is that Nikia is lazy And she's used to getting her way without having to try. The problem with Nikia isn't the economics because actually that's her passion. He was speaking to me in the third person, addressing my mom. And I was in the room, I was in the kitchen. And they were like having this conversation about the problem with Nikia. And I was like, hold up. Yeah. And they were just having a conversation. And he was like, yeah, so the problem isn't economics because Nikia is passionate about economics. The problem is that Nikia has been used to getting her way and not having to try hard. And for the first time in her life, she felt like she wasn't the best person in the room as she's threatened by that. And my parents said, you are not changing your course. You're not changing your university you're not, and I remember throwing a huge tantrum and I told them a few words, which I regret and woke up the next morning determined that I was going to get that first class, um, determined that I was going to do this, that, you know, things don't necessarily come easy. And that was my first, first, yeah, that was the first failure, so to speak, um, that things are not handed to you on a platter of gold. You have to work for them. And so I, second year and third year of university, I wrote in my room, I will get a first. And I put it on like my mirror when I was getting ready. And I would say it to myself, I will get a first. When I get a first, this will happen. And obviously it wasn't just chanting. I was also putting in the work. Um, And then that day came. I got a first. I'll never forget when my results came out. I was in my room and they emailed the results and I screamed. 
And I broke down and I was crying. And my mum ran upstairs. She was like, what's going on? I was like, I got her first. She was so happy. She called like all 800 of her friends and called my dad. And they threw this party. But yeah, so I didn't get into the organizations I wanted to. But in God's ways, he led me to do the work that I was called to do. Right. Um, That was meant to be. I feel like the work I'm doing now is impacting on development in a way that inspires, motivates me and fuses my skills, like you said, you know, so well. And, you know, it's just an environment that it's just a good fit that I'm not sure a multilateral organization, I'd do well there. If I was bored in Deloitte, I'm not sure I'd be doing very well in a very bureaucratic organization. So... I'm curious to extend this story with your parents. Are there any other um, great lessons or values that they've instilled in you growing up? It sounds like education was pretty important for you to travel to the UK, move away from your father and and pursue, you know, a high quality education. What else came through as as fundamentally important from your parents? My my parents still explicitly preach about Um, four H's and two P's. That was what myself and my brothers were kind of, um, they really pushed us about. And four H's is honesty, hard work, humility, and harmony. And then people and places. And yeah, I really think initially when my, my father used to say it, didn't, what's the word I'm looking for? It didn't feel like it was me. It felt like it was imposed on me, like thou shalt for H. But I think it did something to me internally, because I think now people, places, that's me. Like connections, that's Nikia. And like you said, the breadth of the people I've had exposure to really enriched my life. Um, they told me explicitly about how I was lazy and I needed to learn to work hard. And (laughs) I learned that lesson and, um, I, I don't take things for granted the way I used to when I was younger. Um, there's, there's no position that's guaranteed in life, whether it be a position of success, material success or of, of honor, if that makes sense. So, Today, you might be celebrated, but doesn't mean tomorrow you will be. Um, and my father and my mother as well, very big on humility. Just be humble. Like, um, you just, you have all this because you just happen to be born into a specific family. And so don't become prideful because it could be taken away at any moment in time. And since you're in a place of privilege, how can you help other people that are not? How can you pay it forward? How can you build upon all that we've worked for you guys? Um, and harmony. And don't, don't, the family unity is important. I'm curious if these four H's and two P's ended up in uh, a family charter or involved in your constitutional value system at all when you actually set up uh, the formal family enterprise. It actually is. Really? Yeah. yeah. I love that. Because it's one of the things that, you know, I was actually um, saying to my brothers that we need to look into recording my mom and my dad to, for them to tell us their origin stories so we can pass it on to, you know, our kids and great grandkids and what have you. Um, and for them to say it, the four H's from their perspectives, but it's something that anyone that's close to the family knows it because even in meetings, my dad would just start harping on about the four H's and two P's. It used to be three H's and then he upgraded it recently. He added harmony. <laughs> so before it was three H's and two P's. I think everyone knows about three H's. If you know my father, you know the three H's or four H's and two P's. <laughs> that's fantastic. Fantastic. Which brings me to our final question and uh, and it's on topic 
This is a question I ask every guest. Imagine you're writing a letter to your children. What is one lesson or idea that you don't think many parents would mention, but you consider important to understand? It's important to understand the infallibility of people, the fact that people can make mistakes. And not necessarily that you can make mistakes, but people can project their weaknesses onto you and vilify you. But that's not necessarily your truth. Um, It's important to ensure that people's external projections don't become your internal story. Because your story is the most powerful thing you can give yourself. Stories are the most persuasive forms of communication. Um, The stories we hear that other people tell us, but the stories we tell ourselves. So you're a person of strength, you're a person of honor, you're a person that wants to steward all that's been built for you and pass it on to the next generation and to communities around you. So you have to hold on to that story, not necessarily the story that other people are telling you. And your story, Nikkei, has been incredibly impactful. I'm so glad that you've shared it with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Really enjoyed this. I hope we get a chance to do it again. Yes, that would be fun. Thank you. To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week. You can also follow me on Twitter using at Mike Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend or leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the business of family. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.